Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Today we are going to be speaking about advocating for horses, and uh, particularly those involved in the racing industry. Our guest is Susan Kane, president of Unbridled Thoroughbred Foundation and Sanctuary. She's a humane educator, a podcaster, and lecturer, and this is the first time on Animals Today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here and speak with you. I enjoy the show and am an avid listener, so it's thrilling to be on here to speak up for horses. Every year, as the Triple Crown races occur, I get this wave of exasperation and frustration. It's, it's like a recurrent bad dream. And this year was especially bad because the horse, you know, one horse won the Triple Crown and uh, now is going to go down in history as this great champion. So I'm really hoping that as we speak here, there's some reason to be optimistic as we advocate for horses. Uh, why don't you start by giving us a little overview of what you feel the main problems are with the horse racing industry? Sure, Peter, and I think you really uh, narrowed it down right off the bat with Justify, who is the 13th Triple Crown winner in the history of the Triple Crown. He's a three-year-old horse, and in the same year that he was foaled, another 21,000 thoroughbreds were born. And for the people who breed them, they all had the same dream for those horses that Justify achieved. But in reality, most thoroughbreds aren't successful, and are not profitable. So the industry is breeding thousands in the hope of one like Justify. And when Justify crossed the finish line, he was valued at $75 million. But for the other 20,000 or so foals born in that year, more than likely one half will be slaughtered. What most people don't realize, horse slaughter is not legal in the United States, and that is specifically slaughtering horses for human consumption. That horse slaughter is a thriving business across our borders in Canada and Mexico. And estimates indicate that between 10 and 20,000 thoroughbreds a year are slaughtered. And this is a huge number in consideration of the fact that the annual fall crop is only about 20 or 21,000. So you're looking at, you know, half or more being brutally butchered each year. And the media amplifies, you know, thoroughbred racing as the sport of kings and shows that these horses are coddled and adored and loved and celebrated. But that is not the reality of what goes on for the majority of horses racing in this country. You know, we've both used the term so far, industry. Can you sort of describe the industry of horse racing? Who are the players and what's the flow of money like? The horse racing industry is made up of breeders and owners and industry stakeholders who would be racetracks, trainers, um, betting entities that, uh, you know, take and handle from bettors across this country. And, you know, annually, approximately $11 billion is bet on horses. And that is the main source of funding for purses and incentives to breed horses and race them. And that's on a national level. And then statewide, 
there are incentive funds. For example, I live in New York State, which offers the richest breeding and racing incentive fund in this country. It offers about $40 million to participants who, again, are breeders, trainers, owners. And the majority of that money is funded through what is called VLTs, which is an acronym for Video Lottery Terminals. Um, And that money, which is, you know, basically uh, digitized slot machines, goes to increase and subsidize first money and breeders' awards. So it's really not an industry that can stand on its own. It's funded by gambling, and that is why it is managing to survive in the United States. You know, $11 billion is wagered, most of it off-site. Over the years, spectatorship has declined significantly at racetracks as the evidence uh, has come about through social media about what a really inherently cruel sport it can be for the horses. And, you know, I always play with the words equine athlete because that is how the leaders of the thoroughbred racing industry um, deem their horses, you know, that they are, you know, participants that are willing and, you know, athlete implies consent. And yes, horses do love to run, but when they're in a natural setting, when they're out of breath or something aches, they stop running and they slow down and rest. And what's happening with American racing is the drug abuse is simply out of control. And this is in addition to the issues we have with so many horses going to slaughter. In the United States, there is no national regulatory body that oversees what drugs horses are getting. Um, So it's different state to state. And although there is testing, the chemists on the backstretch are always a step ahead of the laboratories who are doing the testing, much like what we saw with Lance Armstrong in cycling or the Russian doping scandal a few years ago. Let's follow up a little bit more about the slaughter. It seems to me that a lot of casual fans may not be aware of what's going on and that if they really knew it was happening, maybe they would uh, change their opinion about the whole industry. Uh, When a horse is no longer valuable, how is it transported for slaughter and then what happens to it as product? This is extremely disturbing because thoroughbreds are purposefully bred. They're brought into this world by people who name them, who dream about them before they are born, who invest time and energy into their training and claim to love this horse. And at the racetrack, if one walks through the shed rows or even at the breeding farms, the horses are well cared for in the sense that they are fed, they're sheltered, they have clean water. And these horses are taught to trust. They're a domesticated animal. When a horse is no longer productive in the breeding at the breeding farm or useful at the racetrack. He or she is at risk of being sent to a middleman who will then transport that horse to a livestock auction and then the horse may end up going to slaughter or the horse may be shipped directly to a holding hub for slaughter horses. There is nothing illegal about transporting horses for slaughter in the United States. What is so egregious is that racetracks 
have anti-slaughter policies, but they are not enforced. So when a horse is done racing or done breeding and they are shuffled through a livestock auction, they are ripped and torn from every comfort they know, from every person that they have ever known, and they are put in to large pens with dozens and sometimes hundreds of other horses of all breeds. And from that point, they await shipment to slaughter. Shipment to slaughter is a wide open stock trailer, large tractor trailer, where dozens of horses who don't know each other are shoved in together, usually on an aluminum floor that's slippery, and they're transported 24 to 36 hours or more, as has been documented by our friends at Animal Angels, to cross the border uh, into Canada or Mexico. And they have no food, they have no water, and they really have no protections whatsoever in how they are even handled during this shipment period. And many of the horses wind up unloading, severely injured. There have been a number of deaths reported in transit with the horses. So it is truly a living hell. And in Mexico, how a horse is slaughtered is gruesome and barbaric. And I am not one on using graphics to make the point, but I think people really need to know this. Horses are slaughtered fully conscious. Mm. They're brought into a concrete stall that is approximately two to three feet wide, five to six feet long. The horse stands there and is repeatedly stabbed with a puntilla knife in his or her back and neck until the spinal cord is severed and the horse is dropped and then is grabbed by a hind leg and hung up to bleed out. These are horses that we see on TV. They are horses that we see in backyards. They are horses that were beloved pets. And that is what is happening to upwards of 120,000 American horses a year. Now, I am speaking at Oxford specific to thoroughbreds, and it's estimated that 20% of the horses crossing the border are thoroughbreds. And the thoroughbred industry claims to have an anti-slaughter position, and what I see is that their actions do not align with that, and that is very misleading to the public. So I do agree with you that if the public knew what is really happening, to the magnificent horses that they see on track, they would find a different way to spend their money in the name of entertainment. We're speaking with Susan Kane. Uh, Susan, you mentioned Oxford, and this summer you're going to be at the annual Oxford Animal Ethics Summer School. Uh, briefly tell us what you're going to cover there. I am speaking specifically on the challenges of protecting thoroughbreds from cruelty and slaughter. And I'm going to use stories to illustrate that of horses that we have rescued from kill pens uh, who are now part of the unbridled family. And what I'm really going to argue is that, you know, until horses are respected for who they are as sentient beings deserving of care and protection and a natural lifespan, that no law will really sufficiently protect them. And I say this because there are laws in place to protect horses, yet they remain unenforced. And there are numerous court cases that have shown horrific abuse of horses 
and the perpetrators go unpunished. It's not illegal to slaughter, to transport horses to slaughter in the United States, yet we have 120,000 or more a year cross our borders. So I am really on a mission to shift the mindset from what horses are as a commodity to who they are as beings deserving of protection from harm and encourage decisions to be made from that point of view, uh, one of compassion as opposed to looking at that horse as a potential money maker, and then when he or she is not making money, is just thrown away. So it's a pretty big mind shift, and I think Oxford is the right um, stage to begin to share that idea and really start to pioneer a new ethical perspective on who horses are as friends, teachers, competitive partners, companions, and also lay forth what is really happening because it's pretty ugly. Susan, what's the website where people can learn more about what you do? Susan Kane, S-U-S-A-N-K-A-Y-N-E dot com. More with the show after the break. Welcome back to the show. So we don't talk much about bees on animals today, have we, Peter? No, we don't. It's been a while. They're very vital to our food supply. They certainly are. Yes. So, you know what's coming? Uh, A snack. (laughs) Want to know how much you know about bees? Not much. Go ahead. You want your snack first? (laughs) I need energy. Okay. There are three types of bees in the hive. Name them. There are the drones. Yep. There are, there's the queen. Two. And there are the, the workers. Very good. Oh, yeah. The male bees are called what? Male bees are drones. Very good. Okay, let's stop there. <laughs> you getting hungry? I'm just going to take my 100% uh, results so far and just cash it in. Drones' only purpose in the hive is to mate with the queen. True or false? That Oh, uh, I guess that's true. That is true. Male honeybees serve only one purpose... They provide sperm to the queen. Mm. About a week after emerging from their cells, the drones are ready to mate. Once they've fulfilled that purpose, they die. So they die immediately after mating. Okay, if it works. Only purpose of a male bee. (laughs) Yes, I know. Okay. Okay. Drones are not able to sting. True or false? That is going to be true. True. They have no stinger. Did you know that or was that a guess? That was a guess. That was good. Good guess. The lifespan of a queen bee is around two to three years. Peter, up to how many eggs per day does the queen bee lay? Five eggs, 250 eggs per day, or 1,500 eggs a day? Oh, 1,500. Yes. 1,500 eggs a day is correct. Without a queen, the colony will eventually die. Peter, regarding workers, all workers are female or male or both. Oh, Oh, gee. I'm going to say they are all male. They're all female. Uh, That's interesting. Number of worker bees in an average hive. is 30,000. 50,000 or more in a strong hive. Very good. Uh, Okay. True or false? The bee will die if she stings. You know, I thought that was true my entire life, so I'm going to say true. It's true. Okay. How many eyes does a bee have? Oh. Two, four, or five? Oh, 
Two, four, five. I'm going to say five. Five is correct. Oh, okay. Two with compound lenses mm-hmm. and three light sensors on top of their head. Oh, that's right. That's cool. How many wings does a bee have? Four? Yep, two okay. on each side. Okay. Bees make honey from? From from the uh, the nectar that they yes. get? Yes. The nectar from the, from the flower? Yes. Oh, interesting. What gives a bee sting its ouch and its itch? Mm. Some... I don't know, toxin? Yeah, it's some chemical called melatonin. Oh. How fast can a honeybee fly? 15, 30, or 60 miles per hour? I'm going to say 15 miles. 15 is correct. Wings beat how many times per second? 50, 100, or 200 Mm. times per second? I'm going to say I'm flapping right now to try (laughs) to simulate how fast that would have to be. I see you flapping. 200, 200. Yeah, you can't flap as fast as a bee. 200 times is... 200 times per second is correct. Don't laugh at my methods. They are the key to success. (laughs) No, it's interesting, Peter. The frequent beats per minute contributes to the buzz we hear when they fly. Yep. How much honey does the worker bee make in her lifetime? One twelfth teaspoon of honey in her lifetime? One half cup or one cup? Oh, okay. Half cup. One twelfth teaspoon of honey. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. How many flowers does a honeybee visit during one collection trip? Five to ten, ten to twenty, fifty to a hundred. How about fifty to a hundred? Yes, that's correct. It's an interesting, uh, tough life for these bees. Hope they're happy. Define happiness. Okay, no, okay. okay. So, Peter, worker bees need to visit around two million flowers to produce a pound of honey. For honeybees, there's power in numbers. From spring to fall, the worker bees must produce about 60 pounds of honey to sustain the entire colony during the winter. It takes tens of thousands of workers to get the job done. A single bee colony can produce more than 100 pounds of extra honey, and this is what is harvested by the beekeeper. Okay, extra honey. Right. What is the name given to wine made with fermented honey? Hmm. I don't know what kind of wine that is. Mead. Oh. Okay, well, you should know this. You know your liquors. What scotch... Hey! What scotch liqueur is made with honey? Oh, uh, oh, I don't know. Drambouille. Oh, really? Have you ever had drambouille? I don't remember. I don't remember <laughs> Is that <either>. a bad sign? <laughs> yes, it's a bad sign. <laughs> How many sides does each honeycomb cell have? Six. Very good. Oh. Elementary. Geometry. How do honeybees communicate with each other? Oh, Release. Have, no, I know they have this dance, right? Yes, they have a dance, which alerts other bees where nectar and pollen are located. Yeah. The dance explains direction and distance. Isn't that cool? It is very neat. The workers. How do bees stay warm and thus remain active all winter? Do they cluster for warmth? Do they hibernate? Or do they auto-regulate their body temperature? I'm going to say they cluster. That's correct. Bees do not hibernate, but do cluster for warmth. The honeybee is the only insect which produces food that is consumed by human beings. True or false? Oh, uh, I'm going to say that's false. There must be somebody eating something around that's the world. That's true. Yeah, well, whole, like, you, no exceptions. Oh, well, okay. I mean, they might be eating stuff, but normal human beings. <laughs> okay. Okay. How do honeybees build a honeycomb? I'll just tell you. Honeybees produce wax from glands located at the underside of their abdomen. They use this beeswax to build a honeycomb. Okay. And humans use this wax to make candles, of course, furniture polish, and stuff like that. That's it. Okay. 
You did good. You did really good. Good guessing this time. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> Not about my liquors, okay? <laughs> don't know my li- I better study up on them. Drambuie. I don't think I've ever had Drambuie. Well, okay, well, let's do some research on that. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner. There's more Animals Today coming up right after the break. Hi, everyone. This is Matt Ellerbeck, and I'm a scorpion naturalist and conservationist. As such, you may have guessed that this Animals Today Minute is on scorpions. These animals are often feared because they are venomous, and many individuals are scared of being stung. However, did you know scorpions can regulate how much venom they inject during a sting? Scorpions have venom as a means to quickly kill or immobilize prey. Therefore, scorpions control how much venom they inject during a sting as the venom is crucial to obtaining a meal. If the scorpion depletes all of its venom, it will take several days to restock the supply. Due to these facts, scorpions may not want to waste their valuable venom during defensive stings, such as on humans. Stings occur in which no venom is injected at all. These are called dry stings. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. Now I want to welcome Brian Scary. He is with his new offering, The Ultimate Book of Sharks. Brian is a photojournalist specializing in marine wildlife, and we've admired his work for quite a while now. This book is published by National Geographic Kids, but truly everyone will enjoy paging through it and reading it. Hi, Brian. How you doing, Peter? Great to be here. Okay, well, let's just start with this. Why did you write this book? Well, you know, I've been exploring the world's oceans for several decades now and working for National Geographic for 20 years, National Geographic magazine, doing stories about marine wildlife. And sharks has been a subject that I find myself returning to over and over again. You know, I I saw my first shark in the wild back in 1982. It was a blue shark in the waters off New England where I lived. And it really had a profound effect on me. You know, I was a 20-year-old kid and just wanted to be in the water with a shark. I thought that would be cool and maybe that would give me street cred with my dive buddies back then. But I came to see sharks as this absolutely beautiful animal. And over the years, I've also come to see them as a fragile species. You know, they're, they're being decimated in our world's ocean. So I wanted to produce this book for children to help sort of shatter some of the myths, but also, you know, give them some really cool scientific facts about how amazing and magnificent these animals are, and also include some conservation materials so that, you know, people, and especially children, can get a better idea of of how important these animals are to our planet. Describe the format and the layout of the book. 
Well, you know, National Geographic always does a great job with everything uh, that they produce, and they really went overboard, uh, no pun intended, on this children's book. You know, it's a hardcover book. It's, it's got all color photos. It's jam-packed. I mean, every page has a bunch of different photos, uh, either of the sharks or of habitat or of kids doing things, you know, to conserve sharks. Um, it's got a lot of you know, sort of interesting facts and figures. So you could pretty much open the book at any point and just sort of start reading about, you know, which shark has the strongest bite or which one is the fastest shark in the ocean or what's the biggest shark, you know, all these great superlatives. And it also has in each chapter sections where I was able to relate my personal anecdotes, my personal stories with sharks. You know, they, they, we have something called the scary moment uh, or the the moment of ah, these two sections of the book, or scary encounter, I think it's actually called. But, um, you know, this is where I can talk about what it was like to be in, in the water in the Bahamas with, you know, half a dozen tiger sharks swimming around me, or the very first time I saw a whale shark in Western Australia and what that moment was like. And, you know, I think kids that have an interest in animals and an interest particularly in the ocean and sharks will find it really interesting because it is a blend of, of, you know, great science and facts and figures and fun facts, but also personal stories that I think makes it real. As I became more acquainted with sharks going through the book, it's really amazing how diverse sharks are, how many different species and how differently they look and behave. Isn't that true? It is true. You know, I think that's one of the the benefits of a book like this, Peter, is that, you know, there, there are actually over 500 species of sharks in the world. And, you know, most folks only hear about a handful of the more dangerous predatory species. And that's usually when there's a concern for public safety and so forth. So I think it's important to understand the diversity, the biodiversity, the number of species, and how sharks are vital to whatever ecosystem you know, in which they live. They're all evolved through, you know, eons of, of nature to be sculpted, to be really perfect for wherever place they, they live. You know, you've got pelagic species that live out in the deep water that have to be especially efficient hunters because food is scarce in those sort of oceanic desert areas. And then you've got reef sharks and you've got ones, uh, sharks that live in cold water and cool water and, you know, tropical places. And they're all, you know, evolved a little bit differently, but they're, they're quite um, interesting biologically, and they're also very vital to the health of each of those ecosystems. They play a, a vital role just the way that wolves or grizzly bears do on land. There's a photo of this tiny pygmy shark. I've never heard of that before. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, the pygmy shark is... Uh, is a very cool little animal. It, it actually measures less than 10 inches, so I guess that'd be about the size of your forearm. But it's a deep uh, species of shark, a deep-dwelling shark. It has really big eyes that help it see in the dark water, you know, one of these sort of evolutionarily ad adaptations that, that help this animal um, perform well. And it actually um, has a beam of light that can emit from its belly. Uh, it, essentially, it, it, these are photo Photophores that that is glows, you know, like phosphorescent animals that actually um, detracts predators from eating it, and it attracts 
other things that it might want to eat. It's it's considered in, in our book the most petite shark, but uh, very, very interesting, the, the pygmy shark. One of my favorite sharks is the hammerhead. How do they use that unusually shaped head? Well, you know, the hammerhead shark is, is one of these species that if you were just to look at it, you might think it's a very prehistoric or, or less evolved species just because it looks so kind of bizarre. But scientists tell us that the hammerhead is actually one of the more evolved species. And a lot of that has to do with the, the way that the, the nostrils in particular have separated to, you know, each side of that hammer-shaped head. And that gives them sort of stereoscopic smell, which is evolutionarily a one-upmanship in, in, you know, that that competition in the ocean. So their olfactory system and and sense of smell is even a little bit better than other species, which other sharks are also very good with, you know, smells underwater. But um, they they are a a very uh, interesting animal. They tend to be, depending on the species, either solitary, like the great hammerhead, which, you know, sort of travels alone, uh, or schooling animals like the scalloped hammerhead, which you'll see in mass schools in places like Cocos Island or in the Galapagos. So um, it's certainly one of my favorite as well. And um, as a photographer, you know, it's an animal that you're always trying to sort of get that perfect picture that captures that absolute hammerhead-ish, if that's a word. (laughs) And of course, you need to be pretty close to get your good shots, right? Well, you're right. and, And that's a great point. And I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, Underwater photographers don't have um, many of the opportunities that a, a terrestrial wildlife photographer would have. So our cameras have to go inside underwater housings or cases that don't allow us to change lenses or change film or media cards these days. We can't use, you know, a really long telephoto lens. I can't sit in a camouflage blind and, you know, use a 600 millimeter lens and wait for a week or two for some animal to wander by. I've got to get in the water, usually only can stay maybe an hour in the water because that's how long the air will last on my back. And then I have to get within, you know, a meter or two of my subject, sometimes even closer. Brian, what can people, what can individuals and youth do to help sharks? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, right now on planet Earth, every single year, more than 100 million sharks are being killed. And think about that number, 100 million. It's a staggering amount of animals to be killed. And in in the shark's case, it's mostly for shark fin soup, you know, which is is what they do with sharks. They they cut the fins off and they make shark fin soup out of it. So there's a number of things that, that need to happen. I think we need, you know, far more marine protected areas in the ocean that really protect all of the ocean. You know, every other breath that a human being takes comes from the sea. No matter where you live, more than 50% of the oxygen we all breathe is generated by the sea. So we need to keep the ocean healthy. We can't kill 100 million apex predators and expect the oceans to be healthy. So I think we have to, you know, elect politicians who believe in conservation and who believe in protecting our oceans. Um, You know, average folks can make choices as a consumer about the kinds of food that they eat. You know, there are better choices of seafood. If you educate yourself a little bit, you can know what's really sustainable and and what's not. So, you know, that changes on a regular basis. But there are websites you can go to to learn about what 
good seafood is. You can stop using a lot of plastics, you know, single-use plastics particularly, like straws or water bottles. You know, there's so many millions of tons of plastic are going in the ocean every year, and that affects sharks and every creature in the ocean. And, you know, there's even, we even have a story in the book about a young boy in Massachusetts who heard that, um, you know, Sharks were shark fins were being sold in his home state of Massachusetts, and he wrote off a handwritten letter to his state representative that asked that that be ended. And the representative submitted a bill, and it actually went into law. They they well, that's impressive. banned the sale and possession of shark fins in in Massachusetts. So you know, I think kids and all of us can take action. We sometimes feel sort of powerless, but we do have power, particularly as a consumer and as a, as a voting citizen. So we should never, I think, lose sight of that. The book is the ultimate book of sharks, perfectly titled, by the way. It certainly is the last word in shark books. And its author is the amazing Brian Scarry. Thank you so much for joining us on Animals Today. Well, thank you, Peter. It's always a pleasure. I'd like to respond to one of the points made by Brian Scarry, and this is in no way intended to detract from his uh, really good book, and that is his uh, comments having to do with sustainable seafood. Our perspective and what we advocate is that if you care about the oceans and the seas and their creatures, then why don't you just not eat any of those creatures? rather than trying to figure out what might be sustainable or not. Now, perhaps what Brian was saying or intended to say was something like, if you absolutely must eat seafood, then make sure it's sustainable. But, you know, the industry, the entire supply chain from sea to plate is just rife with fraud. There is mislabeling. There are instances where fish advertised as local and wild are actually farmed or obtained from thousands of miles away. Recently, there was an article published by Associated Press, uh, June 15th, 2018, that went into this in some detail. I would really encourage you to look at that. It also exposes the extreme abuse of workers in the industry. But moreover, killing these sea creatures, it's just cruel. So why do you want to be involved in that? And finally, some of these uh, websites such as Seafood Watch, which are designed to help you identify which creatures are sustainable and which are not. Well, let me just say I'm skeptical about all of that information. I think there are a lot of players who have financial vested interests, and I would advise just not relying upon any of that information. So go check out that AP article and uh, check out the website Fish Feel and see if that resonates a little better for you. It does for us. You're listening to Animals Today. More after the break. back to Animals Today. Hi, Lori. Peter. Remember uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about our pet peeves, which uh, is a collection of things that people do with or to their animals that were annoying to us, right? Like 
painting their toenails or stuff like that. Or keeping their dog in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> yes, that was a bad Okay, one. we can keep going on and list them over okay. again. <laughs> but, you know, we love our pets. We love our dogs and cats. But they do things that annoy us too, right? So we can't get too mad at them, but we still have some pet peeves about our pets. So we call this our pet pet peeves. Pet pet peeves. Yes. Yes. And I would like to uh, start with this one. Uh, let's. I've got a couple about cats. Like, can we do the cat ones first? Yeah. But for the record, they're yeah. a little annoying, but livable. And we yeah. love them so much, it doesn't matter, right? No, we're not going to punish them. I'm just venting a little bit. <laughs> okay, and venting so, is good. You know, you get to be my age, and occasionally you got to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And if your uh, cat box is uh, in between your bed and your where you go to the bathroom. In our household, the kitty litter ends up all over the ground. The cats just can't seem to contain it to the box. And I'm walking barefoot, and then inevitably you're stepping on cat litter, like you're on a beach. And it's really annoying. And then you track it back into your bed Who sheets? knows where? I mean, it's probably everywhere, but it's, uh, it's like, oh, do I ignore it? Do I wipe it? Do, what, what do you do now? So you would think that after... More than a decade of being fed and being cared for that the cats would have more respect for my feet. It's annoying. And, you know, while I'm at it, let me just talk about uh, other cat litter issues. There are many, but changing the cat litter, the cats, they're like watching. They know you're going to be scooping it and getting a nice, clean palette for them. Maybe you're changing the whole thing out. And as soon as you're there and you think you're good for an hour or two, they jump right in and they destroy your little cleaning job. Okay. So they are leaving their one or two or both for you. And then like, what's the point? You're back where you started. And so it happens without fail around here, doesn't it? It's like they're scheming against us. (laughs) And here's another thing. You know, some of these Cat litter containers are very heavy. You don't want to lug them around the whole house going from litter box to litter box. We happen to have a lot of them. So uh, sometimes when I'm feeling a little weak and tired, I'll uh, pour the cat litter into a secondary container and then bring that to one or two of the cat boxes. And uh, lo and behold, if you put this down on the ground and turn your back, the cat will adopt this little container as its new place and ruin your clean cat litter. Get you a little resentful, you know? Come on, guys, leave me alone. It must be very satisfying for cats to relieve themselves on fresh cat litter. Yeah, it's well, that's a good point. It must be very gratifying to them. It's a little weird if you ask me but it's like i'm the first to mark this i'm the first to go here (laughs) yes well since we're on a roll with cat pet peeves what really annoys me is when i'm working at my computer the cats just tend to want to walk right on the keyboard and inevitably they end up changing my settings or deleting my document or screwing up something yeah usually the the font becomes tiny. That's so huge. So true. Or I go to the bathroom for a minute, come back or get a glass of water, come back. And then when, you know, all of a sudden I see there's some, my computer's black or my computer's changed or gray. And I'm thinking, what did the cats do? Or the cat is just sitting right on your keyboard. They sit on the keyboard. Like they want the warmth or something, or they just know they're just annoying you. I don't know. You know, I saw something cute. It was maybe a cat scratcher or a cat pad or something like that it was it was designed as if it were a keyboard oh that's so cute and uh, it seems logical i mean there must <laughs> sure. be a lot of other frustrating people so okay you go to 
your special keyboard instead. I wonder if that works. That's very funny. And cats, they tend to put themselves on whatever you're working on, right? So you, oh, I know. Whatever's important to you yeah. at that moment, they're going to just settle right there, right on your document. Like, it's, I'll hand you something. Okay, Lori, sign here. And, and I before you down, know it, right? Uh, you're look, getting a pen, and then the cat is right on the X. Right. And then you have to wait. It's not like you can just like, go away. No, you, we tend to wait. Right? We tend to wait. Or if you give them a little push, they get annoyed uh-huh. with us. Yeah. But it seems to be with a lot of novel surfaces, right? Any novel surface, they'll just go plot themselves on. Our cats do that. Yes. But we spend a lot of time waiting for them to move or fixing our computers. I mean, how many person hours per week do we lose just letting the cats do their own thing? A lot. Think of how productive I could be. So you're blaming the cats? Yes, I'm blaming the cats on a lot of things. I think of what... I, I could be president. President of the mm. Pet Pet Peeves Society. I know. <laughs> okay. Here's another I've seen cartoons about this uh, where you think you're petting your cat in a desirable uh, part of their body, and before you know it, there's blood on your fingers because uh, you just went too far or they changed your mind. Blood like, that's drawn from you. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it's hard to know what, what happened. You yeah, know? I know. They're so like a, purring and purring, and, and you then, think they're content. <laughs> and, right. All of a right. sudden, there's ouch. Yeah, right. Or how about this one, Peter? When cats, or at least our cats, you buy them different food or right. more palatable food for them, right? Because yeah, you always want them to be as happy as possible. Absolutely. And then there's no going back. So you have a stock of old cat food just that's no longer palatable for the cats. I know. It's like there's no transition period. It's like <laughs> worthless. So fortunately, if you have dogs, you can give them a little bit, I guess. Oh, right. I don't know. Yeah. Who needs 20 extra cans of cat food lying around? <laughs> okay, speaking of dogs, a couple of things about dogs. We love our dogs. No hate mail, please. But uh, dogs are really, I think it's scientifically proven. Or how about this? Experts say, or research shows, right? Okay, that dogs prevent you from sleeping well, particularly if they are on the bed with you. Uh, in our particular case, uh, this is a big uh, pet pet peeve of ours. If uh, you get up and go to the bathroom, your nice warm spot is taken right away and you are left to fend for yourself and find yourself a little corner of the bed somewhere. That happens always. And you think the dog is sound asleep and you can sneak away and they'll... They're pretending. Their head is on your pillow, yeah. and they're pretending. Yeah, and so you lose your spot, and then... You Plus know, or minus your blankets. Oh, boy. And sheets. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's a common thing. And the other, of course, is if you have a large dog or two, even settling on the bed is hard to do. You need to get that's... in some kind of curvy, contorted position just to keep everyone happy. And, before, you know, it feels good for 10 minutes, but then you're like, ah, this is not a... And, and the dogs... You can't share a bed with too many dogs. You just can't sleep well. Well, we do. And we, we We're do... We're tired sh- all day long. <laughs> that's called doggy contortion sleeping. Haven't you heard that? That is a scientific name, doggy contortion sleeping. I know. There's a psychiatric diagnosis for <laughs> yeah. that, too. I know. I know. I know. Sleep disorder. Oh, you have doggy contortion... It's obvious by the hair on your shirt that you have dog contortion sleeping syndrome. Okay, we could go on and on, I guess, but... No, we can't. There's okay, not much the more that things. annoy us about our okay, dogs and cats. That's good. Okay. Thanks. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for tuning in to the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirscher encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet. The animals.
Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting. And this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. 